In her 50-year career on stage, today's guest made her Broadway debut in a musical by James Goldman, William Goldman, and John Kander. She stopped a show with a performance of a song by the mysterious Esteban Rio Nido. She originated roles in two Neil Simon comedies, elicited our sympathies for an average allergist's wife, and is currently playing the role of Ruth Steiner for the fourth time in Donald Margulies' Collected Stories at the Manhattan Theatre Club. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to meet Linda Lavin. Hello. Four times playing the same character, three on stage, once on television. Why do you keep going back to this character? Well, I like to think of it as going forward. It's a wonderful character and rarely uh, does, does such beautiful writing come along. Um, Donald's a wonderful, wonderful writer, an amazing writer in his um, expression of and search for the truth uh, individually. uh, The creation of this character as an individual is so profoundly deep and interesting and and complex that uh, she's a smart and funny and a fast-thinking woman, uh, a woman of accomplishment, a woman of... um, dangerous uh, emotional levels, Um, uh, a woman who's seriously cut off from the world in terms of her um, ability to make lasting relationships, a a trusting person she is not. And so it's a a challenging and interesting play. It's a two-hander uh, between uh, the the character I play, uh, Ruth Steiner, the older writer, and her young student, played beautifully by an actress named Sarah Paulson. This time, I've done it twice before. I started it 15... It was written 15 years ago. I didn't do it originally here in New York, but I did it in 1999 at the Geffen Playhouse with Samantha Mathis, and then we made a film of it for PBS. And then I played it for... um, And my husband directed me. His name is Steve Bakunas, and we own our own theater in Wilmington, North Carolina. I did it with a young actress there, who's part of our company. We have a, a non-professional community theater. Uh, Isabel Heblick is her name. And she was remarkably good. To find a part that is so enriching to your own life, which is what this is for me. And, of course, the challenge is not to repeat what what I did uh, the three times prior to this because even though memory serves uh, we change as individuals I'm a different person from the person I was in 1999 on many levels and so for me my perception of this character changes so that when you say why do you go back I think uh, number one I go to it because the opportunity to come to Broadway with it was extremely attractive the opportunity to work with Manhattan Theatre Club which always mounts such wonderful productions and to work with Lynn Meadow, the director, who's a good friend and somebody whose um, per- uh, perceptions and uh, artistic commitment is very attractive to me. Um, she's fun to work with and then to find the right young woman. And we auditioned a lot of uh, young women for this part and found Sarah Paulson, who's extraordinarily strong and funny and 
has it makes a, a transformation from a young woman to a mature woman in this play still young but having grown over a six-year period so I find that where I want to be is with the best material and this is some of the best material I've ever been offered I've ever been uh, given the chance to to play it's like a piece of music you know you look at the symphonies of the world or the conductors or the musicians of the world and realize that what they do is play the same music over and over again, but always with a different viewpoint, a different perspective. As we grow and change, we look at material differently. Well, let's stay with that metaphor for a minute because you are doing a duet and you've done it with, as you said, three different actresses. Yes. Yes, you change and you grow, but inevitably, I assume, the character shifts because you've got a different scene partner. Absolutely. Would you, could you could you describe not so much what their performances were, but do you think you were notably different each with each of those actresses because of things they were bringing to the That's play? a wonderful question mm-hmm. and precisely it points out the uh, importance of the dialogue that it is a dialogue, it is a duet that doesn't it it behooves two people to play this piece and of course, the the piece is enhanced uh, by uh, the uh, the dynamic, the energy of the person playing it. And I am different because of Sarah. I'm different perf- night to night, show to show, because of Sarah. Because uh, w- you know that's the value and the beauty of live theater. We are not the same person we were the day before. It's something happened today, or there's a new idea that comes up. Even though you've structured in rehearsal the behavior and the movement. Uh, and the understanding of the story and you're telling the story there are moments that happen and when they happen they augment or change or diffuse or uh, um, illuminate moments that come up in the playing of it and absolutely are influenced by the person you're playing with I'm going to beat your metaphor into the ground and say you've also had different conductors but in theater When you actually get into performance at a certain point, the conductor goes away. So how were there different directorial approaches and ways that the directors perhaps saw Ruth Steiner uh, and how did that vary from how you were seeing her? Well, that's also a a very, uh, you know, a very important point and – the vision of the director, how the director sees this piece, sees the sees the actors in any piece, is always uh, instrumental and uh, a pervasive uh, piece of uh, energy in in the in the creation of a work. In this case, um, Lynn's vision uh, was very close to mine. And she also, we also worked with Donald Margulies in the work, who was present for many of their early rehearsals and did some cutting. And because she's the director and the producer, the the set was cogent. the The cutting of the script, the honing of the script, the taking out what wasn't necessary, what 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 they felt didn't work, was all important. And the collaboration was essential. Uh, y- you absolutely are, uh, as you said, in the metaphor with a conductor or a director, uh, the actor is absolutely in 
um, you know, cahoots with the director about the development of the character or the story. Um, Part of what changed for me in doing this play is uh, when I did it at the Red Barn, which is my theater with Steve, my husband, he directed it and he had seen the movie uh, that I did with uh, at the uh, with with Gil Cates directing. And Gil directed and Gil it at the Geffen as well. At the Geffen, okay, so it was and that was production. very yeah. loving and compassionate and wonderful director. And all, by the time we did it at the Red Barn, which was three years ago, um. Steve's idea was to find some more humor in it and to – I'd have a memory piece uh, uh, in the play where I talk about my early youth in New York. And because of his uh, vision, I started to look at that piece not as a serious piece in terms of looking back at life in its sadness – but looking back at it in terms of my perspective uh, with a sense of humor, with a sense of uh, what was wonderful about it, mm-hmm. not just what was hard or difficult or sad about it. So that's what a director can bring is a coloration, uh, a choice of attitude. And yes, it always does change. And it changes if you're willing to change as the artist who's doing the actual uh, expression of the, of, the, of the words and the behavior. Uh, it's a good thing to be willing to change because you can learn a lot from trying something a different way. Ruth's a tough lady. Has she gotten tougher as you've gone along with her or has she softened? I think she's softened. Really? Yeah. She's... Uh, uh, I I think she's softened because I I've softened, and uh, I don't feel the need to um, describe her uh, as a tough woman. Uh, I I bring to her my understanding of how somebody does the work uh, relates to someone who walks in the door with talent and energy and uh, this particular girl who comes in the door with all kinds of, uh, hyper energy. I relate to Ruth and I express Ruth with a sense of discomfort with that energy and a sense of, uh, humor with that energy, but not the sense of need to describe her as a tough person. Hmm. Um, her her toughness, I think, is more in her um, something she says about herself. She spends a lot of time alone, um, and she enjoys teaching and tutoring because it gets her connecting with people. And she sees herself as somebody who doesn't connect. Uh, as much perhaps as uh, other people or as she used to or as other people would see her. Uh, and so it gives her a chance to be more connective. Writers live very solitary lives. Their work is solitary. They work alone. The collaboration comes after the piece is written. Actors and painters the same way and sculptors. Actors work constantly in collaboration, so we're a different breed of animal. Hmm. Is it true that you had originally been offered this role the first time Manhattan Theatre Club did it back in the 90s? Yes, it is true. And why didn't you do it? Because I had just finished Cakewalk, a play about Lillian Hellman, and I did not want to play one 
writer after another. I didn't. It, Lillian Hellman's life and work and this play was particularly powerful for me. Uh, it was a, a tough uh, role to play because of what it called on uh, to do physically and emotionally. And when I uh, read this play, or I don't even know if I read it, I can't remember, but I know that it was about a writer. I think I must have read it. Uh, I certainly saw the beauty in it, but I didn't want to peg myself uh, uh, as coming from something that close, a strong, powerful American uh, writer. Uh, Lillian Hellman was heroic and bigger than life. Um, and I, I think once you've done a, you know, a certain period in your life which describes who you are then, and Lillian Hellman doing, certainly described who I was then, I didn't want to bring her into yet another portrait of yet another writer. So I needed the distance hmm. to find Ruth Steiner as her own person and not a leftover painting from another possibility of a writer. So was it luck that you got the opportunity to do it a couple of years later at the Geffen, or did you make that no, it was luck. All, all my my career has pretty much been luck. I work, and one job seems to lead to another. Hmm. I I've always believed that when I was very young and starting out, I heard somebody say, "Work brings work," and that became my mantra. Uh, I got a call from from Gil Cates asking me to do the production of. Uh, uh, collected stories at the Geffen, and I was thrilled because the time was right and I wanted to work with him. I have great fondness for him. So it was just, yes, another stroke of good fortune and timing. And in between, you had a chance, strange thing to call a palate cleanser, but you'd (laughs) done uh, Diary of Anne Frank in between uh, Cakewalk and and when you did collected stories. So at least that gave you the distance. Um, Talking about distance, uh, you were born in Portland, Maine and grew up there. Yes. Um, Now, there's some uh, at least performing background in your heritage. Well, my mother was a singer. My mother was a coloratura soprano, a lyric coloratura with a magnificent voice who had a, a small but burgeoning career here in New York. We have recordings of my mother singing with Reza Stevens. She sang with George Gershwin and Paul Whiteman, and she was um, a student of uh, Estelle Liebling and Galli Kirchi, and she was starting to work in uh, a lot of radio. She was just starting to work in television, and uh, her her operatic career was just beginning um but she gave it up she she performed um and had gone to the new england conservatory of music and her her work here in new york uh was also connected with her marriage to my father and the birth of her first child my sister uh who was a little girl when my mother came to new york my mother was winning music awards all over the country and traveled from maine all the way to california um and then came to new york and and worked here and it was tough for women in that in those days that those were the late 20s um to have a family to uh to to uh, pursue a career and keep life together so it was there was no support for women in those days and ultimately she she gave it up. She continued to sing, moved back to Portland, which is where she was from, and my father was from a town called Lewiston, Maine, and they settled there. My mother's family lived in Portland. 
um, and she started to uh, raise her her first daughter and then gave birth to me. Uh, my mother continued to sing for many years, but we always sang together, and there was always music in the house because there was performance and the love of music, and washing dishes was performance time, you know. <laughs> my sister and my mother and I never washed a dish without doing three-part harmony, so performing came naturally to me. It was something I was encouraged to do, and I enjoyed doing from childhood. When did you decide that you wanted to pursue it professionally? When I went to college, I went off to the College of William and Mary. uh, And in high school, I was doing high school plays. I was performing at the Jewish Community Center Theater in Portland. And wherever anybody would ask me or wherever I could, I was singing. I could always sing. And... uh, I would play the piano for my mother when she did concerts. My mother wanted me to be a concert pianist, but that was not my dream. That was her dream for me. My my dream was to sing and dance and act, hmm. and I didn't enjoy practicing the piano as much as it would have taken for me to be a concert pianist. But but performing uh, in school and uh, in community center theaters and co- community theaters uh, was a part of my life. And when I went off to college, uh, I knew that's what I wanted to do, was to go to a school that had a drama department. So it was uh, always a dream for me. So once you got out of school, did you do the classic come straight to New York and start beating the pavement? Oh, I did it during school. I started. I got my first year of professional theater after my freshman year in college. I visited some friends of family in New Jersey and saw that there was a a summer theater auditioning and went to those auditions and became part of the chorus of the Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Uh, It was one of the Sinjin Terrell music tents. Hmm. And uh, I got into the chorus, which meant you did 10 shows in 10 weeks. You did... The kids today don't understand that. (laughs) No, no. You rehearsed one show all day long in the heat of the summer and performed another in the evening. And I got my equity card, and I went back to my sophomore year in college, and I was a professional actor. Wow. So that was where it started. And every summer, I did summer stock. And then I accelerated in school so I could get out of college and get to New York, which is where I was eager to start my my life. Well, I see that your New York debut was a production of OK in at the East 74th Street Theater. Yes. But let's go right to – because – Fairly quickly, a couple of years in, you made your Broadway debut in uh, a show I alluded to in the introduction, written by James and William Goldman and John Kander, yes. the musical Family Affair. Cast included Shelley Berman, Eileen Heckert, and Morris Karnovsky, and I think I saw Larry, Larry Kurt, Kurt, Rita Gardner, and the directing debut of Harold a guy Prince. named Harold Prince. So. What was the story of Family Affair? Because I read you were basically cast in the chorus, I was and by the cast time it opened, chorus. you were playing four roles. Well, I was, uh, and that was due to Hal Prince. We went to Philadelphia with the show. Um, in those days, you always went out of town with the show to try it out. Um, we were in Philadelphia. I was in the chorus, and uh, the director took ill. And they brought Hal Prince in. The show was in trouble. It was unfocused. And Hal came in to Philadelphia. And um, he, I, I don't, I'll never forget meeting him. I was at the payphone backstage, and he walked in. Uh, all the dynamism of him, I'll never forget the energy of him, and walked in and, and pointed to me and said, You're terrific. 
And the next day, he was the director of the show, and he gave me four or five speaking roles, which in those days meant a lot because you got five bucks for every speaking role you got out of the chorus. So he gave me little pieces to do and little songs to sing and pieces of songs to sing. And uh, we're still friends. I just saw him last week. He's in London now uh, directing another new show. He's just an amazing man and has been a good friend and is responsible for a great deal of my happiness in life and in the theater. But it must have been interesting. I mean, was he producing the show? No, he was he not. Was not. So he literally he was brought, was brought in to, to direct. direct. He'd been. He was already a very successful producer, and he and was a stage manager, an, a, a production stage manager, and his mentor being George Abbott. Right. He was ready to direct. So, so there this wasn't was a case of he was finding. His, you don't have stories about Hal figuring it out with the cast. I, I don't have one of those. No, <laughs> and uh, uh, to, to me, it was you know showing up and doing whatever he said. I know he changed the set, and I know he made some big changes in the show, but he'd be the one to tell you what he did. I just was the benefit of what he was doing, and uh, he he opened my life because uh, I got reviewed in that show out of the chorus, uh, and I'll never forget that, reading those reviews and somebody pointing out this, you know, this this young woman in the in the chorus who uh, played four or five different parts that was unheard of and the next show i did with him was it's a bird it's a plane it's superman where i became an actual character and well, had billing and everything. You're jumping ahead of a few things um i wanted to ask certainly now family affair not a show i've ever had the opportunity to see not a show i think has been revived beautiful is, score. It, is it an undiscovered gem it's a beautiful score. Hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know that it's ever been revived or done uh, elsewhere, but uh, it was before Ebb. It was mm-hmm. Candor and the Goldman Brothers, and it has some beautiful music and lovely lyrics. It's a lovely story about a wedding and what happens in a family when a wedding is taking place. And I really don't, I can't be objective about the show. I was so inside it. I don't know what it would look like to do, but it was... Um, it was the beginning of my life here in New York, for sure, on Broadway. Hmm. Over the next few years, some number of shows, which I must confess I'd not heard of before, The Riot Act, Kiss Mama, Wet Paint, The Game is Up, Hotel Passionato. Any Anything noteworthy in there? Well, Hotel Passionato was a musical version of the Fado Farce Hotel Paradiso. Uh-huh. And it was... A charming show done around the same time as The Mad Show. I remember Paul Sand was in it, Joanne Worley, and we then went on to The Mad Show, the three of us together. Um, We had one gig before you went on to The Mad Show because you went into On a Clear Day. Yes, and uh, the national company. You and, and playing the part originated by Barbara Harris? Right, yes. So... With Van Johnson. With Van Johnson. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, and it was the national company. We all packed our bags for a nine-month tour, and we were back in town within four weeks. Oh, golly. It went broke, and that was horrifying. Uh, people had sublet their apartments. Hmm. But it was it was the first time that I met Marvin Hamlish, who was then 18 years old and was the dance music director hmm. and was the rehearsal uh, conductor, and that's where I met Marvin. Uh, boy, it was you know it was. I guess that was what sixty five. Yep. And then came back and did the Mad Show. That's right. Now, 
some people listening to this may not even realize how much Mad Magazine was part of popular culture in the 50s, mm-hmm. 60s, and even into the 70s. I think it still survives, but in a much much lessened form. But the Mad Show was not really put together by the people who did the magazine. It was it, they, they sort of took the name and went off on their own to some degree to do their own I, I really piece. don't know the workings of it, but I certainly I know that the publisher of the Mad Mad magazine was involved. William Gaines. And he was uh, and some of the writers were absolutely involved oh, in the okay. writing of the show that re- that wrote for Mad magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, my participation in it uh, was on a daily basis in rehearsal doing these sketches and songs and I remember the day that Mary Rogers came in with a song uh, called The Boy From on a piece of sheet music and said, this is your song, and it uh, it was a satire of the girl from Ipanema. Well, I mentioned was, the the uh, the pseudonymous Esteban Rio Nido yes, was, did. in fact, Stephen Sondheim. Mm-hmm. Did you know immediately that this was, in fact, Sondheim, or was it, did Mary Rogers just bring it in and... No, I think I knew, yeah, no. yeah. So, but that's... A heck of a but a this number. was a this was a little pastiche. It was done. Right. It was yes, it was a heck of a number. It still is. I I have it in my act. I do a, a concert act, and I and I do the boy from, and I love doing it. And I'm going to do it at an event for for Mary uh, on the 21st of June here in town, a fundraiser. Um, it's a lot of fun to do, and it it, it was a remarkable uh, event that show because it was only meant to go for two weeks as a Christmas entertainment, hmm. and we thought it was uh, a big disaster. We didn't know what we were doing until we opened. We got these sensational reviews. We just thought it was just uh, a fluff. Hmm. And and a lot of it had had problems and we 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 had not we had no perspective on the show and we next thing we knew we got these great reviews and we were in a recording studio two days after we opened making an album huh. so it was beyond anything we expected and it went on for months and years and it was really only supposed to be just a tiny christmas children's entertainment but it became a very chic adult show and it was very successful well you mentioned the cast members, the original cast, along with you, Joanne Worley, Paul Sand, Richard McIntyre Libertini, Dixon. and McIntyre Dixon. And I mean, now you, you know it's, right. it's you look in hindsight and you say, "My God, you know, how did they get that cast?" But at the time, that's not who was so well performing. known. It was Joanne Worley before Laugh-In, and that's right. Richard Libertini before all of his his film roles, and it's it's pretty remarkable. But that brings us to your return to Broadway, specifically It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, directed by Hal Prince. Mm-hmm. Uh, a follow-up, uh, certainly it was in the wake of um, the success of Bye Bye Birdie by a few years, but Strauss and Adams, and a book by David Newman and Robert Benton, who very shortly thereafter became famous for, for writing uh, the uh, Bonnie and Clyde film. Yes. So... What was the experience of Superman? I auditioned for it um, by finding a a comic book, which was not easy to find, uh, of Superman because they had now – there was no such thing anymore. Superman used to be on its own, its own comic book. Now it had been amalgamated with uh, maybe Spider-Man – they were together in a comic book, and I went all over the city looking for it. And then I went into a phone booth, 
and I took and I'm sorry, not a phone booth, a, a photo booth, <laughs> same thing. And I I got a, a green fedora and put an orange band around it. I'll never forget it. And that was in the days when you could get five pictures for a, a buck. And I took pictures of myself as Lois Lane and slapped them on to each frame of the comic book. <laughs> As me re- reacting to the deeds of Superman as Lois Lane, and I sent it to Hal Prince because I knew he was going to be directing the show, and because I had done the uh, family affair with him, I I knew him, and so I sent this book to him, and he called me up and he said, "Well, that's just a brilliant way to get my attention, but you can't be Lois Lane, but I've got another part I want you to audition for," and it was the part of Sydney, the. Uh, the 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 gal Friday to Max Mencken, the gossip columnist of the Daily Planet, played by Jack Cassidy, and I went in and auditioned, sang for them, and then they sent me home with the song "You've Got Possibilities" and asked me to learn it, and come back and sing it. So I did, and I think I auditioned for them three or four times, kept bringing me back. I, I borrowed a, a blonde wig from Sylvia Miles. <laughs> and I said, I think they want a blonde. Can I borrow your wig? And went on and did this song a couple of times for them. And the next thing I knew, I got the job. And there I was with my first real big part on Broadway. I had just done the Mad Show, so I was still doing the Mad Show while we were rehearsing Superman. It was all in the same season. How much was Superman being changed as it went along because it it didn't it was one of those shows that as it was coming in everybody was expecting smash hit and was it something that in previews was still being tweaked and toyed with oh yes absolutely uh there were cast changes um and there were songs that were being written suddenly you'd be handed a new scene or someone was handed a new song. I got a song in the second act while we were out of town trying out the show called Ooh, Do You Love You, a song that I sang to Max Mencken. Um, but arrogant, the arrogant uh, reporter. And that song I did not have, you know, when we first went into rehearsal. So there were a lot of changes. And again, I wasn't behind those closed doors, but we were rehearsing and um, constantly uh, p- putting in new work. There were, there were nights when you'd go on just having rehearsed a new scene. Mm-hmm. And that's always exciting. I tell you, it prepares you for anything. <laughs> you know, you get that under your belt and you go on in front of an audience and try a new piece of material. So after that, there's nothing you can't do. So it was it was exciting and it was uh, stressful, I'm sure, for the powers that be. For us, it was what you do. It, it uh, here here try this out. You know, you get one rehearsal and you're smack on stage. You get a new costume, you get a new song, you got a new costume. Mm. You know, got a new scene. You got something new to to try, and and your character is developed, and you feel validated because to get a new song means you, you know they like you in the show and they think it's working what you're doing is working so your Hmm. part is augmented Uh, it's all exciting now the following year you worked with another novice broadway director carl reiner in a play that he wrote something different what what was something different and what was the experience of working with the great Carl Reiner? Well, he he is great, and he's a lovely man, and it was a funny play, uh, 
a troubled play, we found out, when we got to New Haven with it, where the third act didn't seem to work at all as far as the critics were concerned and or the writers and producers. So one night, they actually cut the the third act out of the play, and we were just doing a two-act play. They just dropped the third act and called it the end. Uh, That was uh, something that I think was unprecedented. Uh, I played the wife of a playwright. I think it was a very autobiographical piece about a playwright who thinks he's a one-hit wonder and can't write another play. So he asks his wife to pretend to be his mother and he brings in the he lives in a lovely big old home in Connecticut and he tries to recreate his youth by turning his kitchen of this mansion into his uh, one bedroom apartment or his studio or some walk up apartment that he's lived in to go back to his past to try to find his his hunger again so he can create a play again instead of being a successful playwright he wants to be yet a yearning hungry playwright so it's a wonderful idea and it has a lot of funny stuff in it and bob dishy played the character uh, of the of the writer and i played his wife who was trying to drive him crazy with two sweats two sets of of twins um it was a complicated play and it was it was and carl was directing it and I think sometimes it's not easy for a writer to direct their own work. Mm. Um, so I don't know what happened, but it was a complicated piece, uh, and it it I don't think it was successful. I remember a play I did in 1968. When was when was the Riot Act? I mean, uh, when was the, the the Riot Act? Is a play I did during the writers' strike. Right, that was back in '63. That was '63, and there was a writers' strike. And the good news about that was nobody knew it was a flop. That's was that was the joke. <laughs> but um, but uh, something different was '68, right? '67. Okay, see, was, I don't have my dates right. No, what's interesting about something different, and what I wanted to ask you specifically is. One of the reasons that show is remembered is for anybody over the years who has studied William Goldman's book, The Season. It's one of the plays from that season. Do you recall having been in the show and you knew William Goldman from the experience with Family Affair? Do you recall seeing what he wrote about chronicling it? No. No. No, I mean, I have. It is there. Yes, I I remember drifting through the book, and uh, uh, <laughs> but you drifted over that, that I, chapter. I don't know. I'm, I probably read it, but I don't. As I sit here, remember what he said about it. Hmm. Well, skipping from a play, uh, about probably, a playwright. Excuse me. He probably has a better perspective <laughs> on what happened, though, than I do. Well, yeah. I, I often refer people to. I that remember book, Carl so. was really. Well, you know, it'd be interesting to hear what it was that he said. If you have any research on it. But I remember that Carl was not happy with me and that he didn't hmm. think I was doing a, the job he wanted to, to see. Uh, and, and I think I was confused about the role and confused about how to play her. But um, the good news is we've, uh, we've seen each other for years after that and, and, and remained friends. But it, it, was a, it was troublesome. It's hard to have your work uh, be so dissected, you know, out of town and then tell, have your producers tell you the third act doesn't work. Hmm. So. so from a play about a writer who's worried that he's a one-hit wonder, you 
not too long thereafter ended up in a play by a writer who was anything but a one-hit wonder when you did Last of the Red Hot Lovers. At that point, Neil Simon was on a tear. Totally. And you were going into, you know, a great big comedy. Now, the structure of that show was Jimmy Coco was in all three acts, but yes. each act was a different woman. So essentially, you were doing a one-act play yes. with Jimmy Coco each night. Yes. What what was what was that like being one section of a larger story? Well, it just meant you had to wait around all night for the curtain call. That's pretty much what it was like. Um, it was a, it was the I loved the, the character, and it was uh, uh, for me uh, working with Jimmy and working on this character was extremely uh, satisfying. It it's a it, you know, Neil is a serious playwright, uh, I believe, as as funny as he is, and and he's extremely funny like nobody else. Um, it, it There's a great deal of depth in his writing, and I found that playing Elaine Navazio was um, that the comedy came out of her desperation and her pain, and Jimmy always knew that as a performer, so it was so much fun to, to work with him. The thing about doing a Neil Simon play in, what was that, 1970? 69, yeah, 70. Was that you knew if you were going and do Neil, Neil Simon play that you had you you had a job for a year. <laughs> you did. You mm. knew that you were in a hit. It was a given. Uh, as you say, he was on a tear, but there was nobody more successful, and there was nobody who could do it better. Mm. And it was scary working with him because you wanted to make him laugh all the time. You wanted to make sure that you were getting it right. And Neil turns out to be one of these people who is willing to cut and change and do whatever it takes to make the joke work, but also to make the story strong. And but was he you. someone who would laugh? Could you get him to laugh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he, he did laugh at his own jokes oh, when the jokes yeah, landed. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. He did. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I may have gotten it backward, but that same year, off-Broadway, you did Jules Pfeiffer's play Little Murders, which is also a success. Interestingly, it had played on Broadway for a couple of years earlier for all of two or three performances. Yes, and I remember seeing that, that play on Broadway with Barbara Cook, um, Elliot Gould. Um, Alan Arkin called me to play Patsy in, uh, in, uh, I'm trying to think, the year doesn't seem right to me. Hmm. I I think it was earlier that we did, uh, that we we did Little Murders and it was down at the Circle in the Square on Bleecker Street when it was in fact a a three-sided stage, a thrust stage. And Alan Arkin directed it with Elizabeth Wilson and Vincent Gardenia, Vincent Paul Gardenia. Benedict, and Fred Willard. <sighs> yeah, yeah. And oh my God, it was a very different experience uh, from what I remembered seeing on Broadway. Uh, I think the time was more right for it by the time we did it. It was really a prophetic work, but so much violence was beginning to happen in New York then. <laughs> So, so people understood that this was not a metaphor. This was real. This was mm. how f- people lived. Um, there were families like this. The dysfunctional family was uh, 
becoming outed. And so it didn't seem so bizarre anymore. Hmm. Uh, it seemed more identifiable. I loved uh, playing this character. She's she's somebody who was extremely eager to be powerful and was failing miserably at it. And then suddenly a sniper's bullet kills her and she drops dead on stage. I mean, what's more fun than that? I had done a play of John Guare's, which you may be mentioning soon, but I'll just jump in and talk about it because it's called Cop Out. Mm -hmm. We did that in 69. We did that on Broadway, and that was not the right place for it. But the girl that I played gets shot, and she, running away from the shooter, she jumps off stage. This is what John Guare had written. Hmm. She jumps off stage, and she is shot and lies in the aisle until the last member of the audience leaves the theater. And that's what I had to do every night. So while the rest of the, the, the company was all at Joe Allen's, you know, having a burger, I was still lying on the, on the aisle of the theater waiting for somebody to come and get me. Um, th- that was what he's written. And so I've been shot twice in the theater. I hope Cop Out was, was one of two one-acts on the same bill. I Cop hope it was at least was the second th- well, play. Yes, it was the second play. The audience would leave around me. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you didn't have to stay there. No, I didn't. Um, now, I'm going to jump ahead because our time is tight and there's so much to talk about. Um, in the 70s, you were doing a variety of work, uh, production of Servant of Two Masters. Um, I am curious, Comedy of Errors in Central Park. The Servant of Two Masters was out at the... With the John Drew. At the John Drew but, in but, East Hampton. But Comedy of Errors for the Shakespeare Festival. Comedy of Errors with Again, Shakespeare in the Park. in hindsight, Look an who extraordinary is in that cast. Show. Ted Danson, Danny DeVito, Roxanne Hart, Jeffrey Jones, and Michael Tucker, among others. Mm-hmm. I mean... Blair Brown. Now, at that point... Wasn't a huge part that you had in that, was it? D- by the way, Don uh, Donny um, Don Scardino was Don in it Scardino as well. Don Scardino was yep. the one of the leads in it. Uh, it was a small part, and I auditioned for it. It was a time in my life when I needed to uh, let people know I wanted to work in the theater, and um, I was I'd never worked in the park before. Um, John Pasquin was the director. And he's still a good friend. He's married to Joe Beth Williams. We did later, John and Joe Beth and Sam Waterston and I did Uncle Vanya uh, at the Spreckles Theater in San Diego, California, after I'd started Alice. Hmm. So it started relationships with people I'm still friends with. Michael Tucker and uh, Jill Eikenberry are still good friends of mine. And uh, it was an incredible time. It's true. Within the next year or two... uh, Several of us went to California and began television series. Danny DeVito and Ted Danson carried Spears in that production, <laughs> and I played the head courtesan. I didn't have the lead in the play. <laughs> so we were all doing the small parts, but they didn't even speak. I at least had a speaking part. <laughs> Which I'm sure you remind them of regularly. <laughs> now you mentioned Alice, and you did two seasons on Barney Miller and then nine seasons on Alice. Yes. Which – Certainly took you away from the stage, pretty uh, pretty much for for that period. Yes. Maybe the occasional show dropped in there. So um, I noticed a couple of credits at American Repertory. In that the, was right after Alice. Yeah. Yes. And then 1986, Neil Simon. Yes. Broadway Bound. Yes. Um, 
a different tone of a play than, mm-hmm. you know, because Neil as an author had grown and changed and was was that something you had to go after or I was did. that something I had to go after it. Um they had cast the entire play except for the part of the boy's mother. Hmm. And I think because this was such an autobiographical piece and it was the third piece in the trilogy. They'd done Biloxi Blues, Brighton Beach Memoirs, and now this was Broadway Bound. Neil was he was especially sensitive about finding somebody, the perfect person to, to cast as his mother. Hmm. Um, and I remember I met with him at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. He was playing tennis, and I was going to have breakfast with him. I'd clearly known him because of uh, Last of the Red Hot Lovers. Um, but it's been many years, and I was uh, just coming off the success of, of Alice. And uh, I met with him for a coffee, and he seemed very reluctant to um, to give me the, the job. And he certainly knew my work. Hmm. But I sat with him, and I said... Is it difficult for you to see me as your mother? Of course, I had read the script um, because you're uncomfortable with Alice playing your mother or um, can you see the value of Alice playing your mother Hmm. (laughs) in another sense and without saying as in box office or name value or any of that? Is this uncomfortable for you? Because I can certainly understand that. I don't think he ever answered the question, but finally, I and I, by the way, I dressed that day. I mean, he was dressed in tennis whites, and I was dressed as in 1939. I found a costume and shoes and gloves, and I, I wanted him to see that I understood who this woman was and where she was coming from. And I finally, after I'd finished the bagel and the coffee and there was nothing left to say, I said, would you like me to read for you? And Gene Sachs was the director. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, not, not, not I, but Gene would like to have you read. And I said, I'd be happy to do that. So I met them uh, the next day, I think, in somebody's house in Bel Air. I think it was Neil's. And I read the, the part. Somebody came to read with me and... They sat around talking, and I looked at them, and I said, you know, I need to go home and make dinner. Uh, Do I have the job? And they said, oh, yes, by the way, you do. So I said, good, see you in the fall. And I moved to New York that fall and started the, the production. We did the first reading, and I saw Manny Eisenberg slip a note to Neil Simon on yellow legal pad, he tore off a piece of paper and slipped him a note, and I later found out that Manny had said, we need to write something more for the, the part, for the part that Linda's playing, for the mother or for Linda. I'm not sure what she said. And Neil came up to me that after the reading, we'd done the reading for the Schuberts, and he said, I want to write you. I only had, uh, my part only existed in the first act. There was very little for me to do in the second act. And he said, I want to write you something to do in the second act. I want to write you a story uh, to tell your son because I want to see this character when she was happy. Hmm. So I said, absolutely. I'd love that. And that night was delivered to me. I don't know how many pages it is, 11, 12, 19. I read 12, yeah. Okay. That night, he wrote from that morning till that afternoon or evening – those 12 pages, that's how 
prolific, how in touch, how not only speedy, but uh, how skilled he he was. And that that piece arrived, and um, it was up to me now to learn it. But it was also that he knew who he was writing for hmm. at that point, which must have played a role. Once, it, instead of writing it in the abstract for whoever they cast, he had an idea of what you could do. Well, that's a good point. You raised something obliquely that's a, a, an important question. Obviously, nine years of a successful television series mm-hmm. is a great blessing for any performer in so many ways, but it can also be a bit of a curse. Exactly. Did you feel coming off of Alice that you had to fight your way back to be considered for other roles? Well, I knew that I had to make it uh, – an attempt to, if not fight my way back, I had to uh, uh, show up. Uh, I, I wanted very much to be uh, working again and to explore all the women who live inside me. Alice was one of many. Uh, and when this part came along, it was somebody I understood well. Uh, I knew these women. I knew they were women I grew up with. They were my mother and her mother and her sisters. They were all the women I had been uh, surrounded by all my young life. So I felt a tremendous connection to her. I had also called Robert Brewstein at the American Repertory Theater as Alice was coming to a close. And I, because I had worked for him in 1964 at the, when he ran the Yale Drama School Theater, uh, I called him once he'd moved to ART and said, have you got anything? Because I know that I have to show up in the theater and let people know that I am alive and well and I am a skilled actor who wants to do other things even though I'm well known now, uh, as Alice. Hmm. So it was something I had to absolutely motivate. After the success of Broadway Bound, a couple of years later, you succeeded Tyne Daly in Gypsy. Now, it was interesting to me, you had played Rose Louise in the production of Gypsy when you were 20 years old with Margaret Whiting as, yes. as Bomber Rose. Yes. Um, she was wonderful, by the way. The the role of Gypsy is the the, the Hamlet of, of musical Mama theater Rose. for actresses. Yeah, the role of Mama Rose. Yes. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. and um, it's funny. Betty Buckley was just here a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about her Gypsy, uh, her performance in Gypsy. What what was your take on Mama Rose? Uh, well, what do you mean by take? Different people see her in different ways. How did you see her? I saw her as somebody who came from uh, poverty and abuse and who was uh, strapped with two young children as a single mother, um, who had a talent of her own that she had suppressed. She Do you believe had, she had a talent? Because that's always a choice. Was she actually talented or she did she just want to be talented? Well, <laughs> I... You know, I I believe that she had uh, the desire uh, and a musical talent and a Mm -hmm. musical ability and that she birthed these two kids and that her only way out of the uh, emotional and economic uh, ghetto that she lived in with a father who was uh, uh, abusive and very mean to her and not helpful at all was to... um, as she says, get my kids and get out, and and that they were the kids were her way out. Um, 
I believed that she was um, attractive and sexy and flirtatious and pretty and willful and uh, had a dynamic need to uh, show them all. Mm. I think she was angry and uh, terrified. Um, though I think that her her past relationships with everybody had been unsuccessful and that she used people uh, in order to uh, get a buck in her pocket by the end of the day and that that became addictive for her. I think that she, when she sang Rose's Turn, when she said, I could have, I could have done it, I think it was possible that she could have. Uh, and that was my approach. That was my vision. I don't think she starts the the, the story starts with her being uh, a bulldozer. Mm-hmm. I think the story starts with her being uh, wily and uh, attractive and charming, and as I say, sexy and flirtatious. Otherwise, I don't think she would have gotten through those doors. Mm-hmm. I think once she got through the doors, she had her determination took over and her sense of humor kept her going until, I mean, have an egg roll is certainly uh, an indication of that. Uh, I think she worked at getting what she wanted in a way that might have been disarming and certainly could have been called uh, uh, over the top and, and, and difficult for some people. But it sure did get her a lot of what she wanted. And finally, she couldn't stop. Her uh, her addiction to power became her downfall. And it, it became a tremendous sadness for her, too, because her kids left her. Even though you had all of this musical theater experience and you've done Broadway musicals, this appears to be the first time that you were the lead in a Broadway musical. And it's certainly, as I said, such a major role. What was what was it like to have those moments in that big a show? Well, I was I never even thought of it till you mentioned it just now. It was completely logical that I should be up there playing that part. I had you know, I think every part I've ever done has led me to the next role. I feel hmm. that way about collected stories now. So it was it was something I had sung Rose's turn on a PBS uh, show of um, uh, gosh I can't I can't think how it came about but I know it was Joe Layton who got me the job. Hmm. I'd worked with Joe before in television specials. I mean I had been a star in television and I'd had my own Broadway uh, successes certainly in musicals but I had also played leads in Summer Stock and I had uh, had my own musical uh, special and been guest starring on other people's musical specials so I knew Joe Layton very well and I think it came time to do um, a a special of a, a musical special and and this the, Rose's turn came up as an opportunity, and Joe called me and said, "I want you to do this number." Mm-hmm. So um, the powers that had uh, that were doing the the Broadway production of Gypsy had seen me do Rose's turn, and they knew I was up to it. Mm. 
the, the other thing, the, the dynamic of going into a show that's already running is is the is the question for me. It, it's not so much that I was taking on a, a major role. Of course, that was that was big and exciting, but I knew I was up to it, and I had the chops for it, and I studied, and I worked for four months privately with a coach, and physically I walked five miles a day and got myself athletically ready to to take mm-hmm. on the role. But I think the point is. How do you go into a show that's already running uh, with, with, with a company that's used to having another actor, in this case, right. Tyne Daly, playing the part? You know, it's 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 tough on everybody. Mm. I don't want to miss asking you about the tale of the allergist's wife, Charles Bush's play. Oh, I believe I read that Charles wrote it with you in mind. Mm-hmm. Is that true? I asked this question a few times. That's what he says. Well. So here's my question. When somebody says to you, I wrote this with you in mind, and then you read it, yes. do you, do you, did you find yourself thinking, why did he see me for this? Or did you, did you read it and say, oh, I know why he wants me to do this? Pretty much the second. I mean, I, I, I read it, and I, when you start reading a piece of material you feel connected to, the next thing you know, you're reading it out loud, and that's what happened to me with Allergist's Wife. It happened with the Paul Rudnick play that I did last year, too, The New Century. But with Allergist's Wife, God, he he absolutely had he followed me around the country asking me to do this play and i mm. knew it was going to take a lot to do it it was a lot a lot of work but um you read a part and you don't necessarily see yourself in it but you see yourself in in the character you don't you you know when someone says i wrote this with you in mind you do think well what about me tells you about this person uh but you know it's the it's the beauty of the writing whether it's written with me in mind or somebody else that you grab it and say wow i can do this now you mentioned this early in in our talk and i don't want to let it go by you and your husband run a theater in Wilmington, North Carolina. Yes. What prompted you to start a theater there? Well, it, Since it, certainly, as a performer, you have all you know lots of opportunities. We live in a community that has a lot of theater in it. It's all community theater, non-professional. There's a film studio there, and a lot of talented people have come there to make movies and stayed. So there's a lot of theater. And Wilmington has a history of uh, non-professional community uh, amateur theater. Um, The Thalian Association, which is one of the oldest in the country, if not the oldest, started in Wilmington. So there's a lot of theater, a lot of theater companies in this town. And we bought an, an automotive garage and didn't know what to do with it until somebody said, can I give classes in your garage? And we were doing plays in other people's theaters. I was directing uh, art and then dinner with friends. And Steve was building sets and designing sets and acting. And I was acting and we were directing other people's theater companies. And we decided maybe this automotive garage is our theater. Hmm. So it came about that way. It came about from uh, w- wanting to do really good quality work and when in a town where there's so much theater uh, you want to do the best and use the best people you can possibly find and do the best plays and in three years we've done nine plays we started with doubt 
and we and I played the nun, and he played the priest, and then we went on to collected stories, and we've done Glen Gary and Speed the Plow and Four Dogs in a Bone, and I played Miss Daisy last year for sixty five performances, which is a lot for our theater. We usually do five per weekends, hmm. Wednesday through Sunday. Um, we pay our actors. We don't pay ourselves because it's not it's community theater, and Steve designs and builds the sets, and he designed and built the theater. We have. It's an, it's in a little neighborhood that we've revitalized by building the theater. We just did um, the uh, last night of Ballyhoo, which I directed, and now we're in the middle of doing the uh, tale of the allergist wife, and I'm playing the mother. I'm not playing my part, the part I played on Broadway. So we're in the middle of that, and because we've sold out, it's only a 50-seat theater, so we do very well. People want to come and see us, want to see this theater. We do really good quality work, So, and it's an intimate little theater. Um, So I took time off to do this play on Broadway, and I'll go back and resume Allergist's Wife in September. Huh. It's it's fun. It gives us a life. It's like a little mom and pop grocery store, but it's theater. But your your break from doing theater is doing theater. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. You're Linda, right. I know we've skipped over things and I well, thank I'll you so much for your time. time. And thank again, you, congratulations on Collected Stories. And do you think you'll do it again? Collected Stories? Do you do you think again in a few years you might Try it again? I don't know. I try to stay in the moment. I can't live in the future anymore. It doesn't work. (laughs) All right. With that, Linda Lavin, thank you so much for being our guest today on Downstage Center. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of The Wing's fans on Facebook at the American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.